1: Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Programme, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools. that so we're here every Saturday, twelve noon, midday, and we're here to defend and to promote public education. Now it may not be politically correct, but we define public education as public in purpose and outcome. Above all, public in access. No discrimination about entry into public education for either students, teachers, cleaners or anyone else associated with it, parents, you name it. We all know that our public schools should be public in ownership and control, so we're not very happy with private-public partnerships. And we also know that it is only public education which can be publicly accountable for the billions of dollars which are funnelled into education every year. In this, they are quite distinct from the private and religious sector. And above all, our politicians should be promoting and be prepared to send their children to our public schools. Now, we know none of this is the case, with perhaps the exception of being public in access, but we have to fight for it. And we have a website at www.adogs.info and here is press release 788. School chaplaincy case. A win at VCAT. For months the Rationalist Society of Australia has been running a chaplaincy challenge to expose and finally end the overtly discriminatory nature of the National School Chaplaincy Program. The program has faced numerous complaints about its religious nature, which has been wound back through the Australian Capital Territory's pledge to remove chaplains from public schools and the Federal Labor's policy to allow schools to pick a secular chaplain instead of a religious one. Victoria, however, has opened the way for secularist or atheist school chaplains as part of a settlement to a landmark legal challenge that could open the way to secular or atheist chaplains, and you can find out all about that in the Guardian of um, March the 27th. Now, in this Victorian civil and administrative tribunal challenge, a lady called Juliet Armstrong, who works as a school chaplain in both public and Christian schools, despite not being a Christian, argued that the government and access ministries discriminated against her because of her lack of religion. As part of a settlement at VCAT, the Victorian government has agreed that chaplains don't have to be religious, and they will change the job description to make it clear suitably qualified but non-religious people can be hired. While this change may not be difficult for the government, the new job description will be a headache for the religious agencies like Access Ministries. They will have to comply with the government's new job description, and if they don't, they'll risk more litigation. In order to settle a case arguing that the program is discriminatory, Victoria agreed last Monday, that's just this last week, to change the position description for chaplains. It's a move that the Rational Society and the academic law professor at Monash, Luke Beck, believe will force providers to hire atheists and allow religious groups to endorse atheists. But the Victorian Education Department has disputed that its practices have actually changed, which is very interesting. They claim that they've already been doing this. It simply reflects what already occurs, a spokesman for the Education Department said, because secular chaplains could already be endorsed by religious bodies. But what religious bodies were going to endorse them? The Commonwealth-funded program currently requires chaplains to be recognised or endorsed by a religious institution, despite the fact that pastoral care is only supposed to provide general spiritual and personal advice without crossing the line to proselytisation. So, listeners, what do we have here? We have a private body determining who can work in our public schools. This goes to the public in access question, doesn't it? And the question of religious discrimination occurring in public schools. Congratulations should go to the Rational Society Association's fellow, Luke Beck, and the plaintiff, Juliet Armstrong, for their perseverance in this case. Dr Meredith Doig, who is the President of the Rational Society, told Guardian Australia that it planned to approach religious organisations such as the Anglican and Uniting Church Ministers to provide letters of endorsement to allow qualified secular pastoral care workers to be hired and still comply with federal rules. After the May election, the Rationalist Society believes that this change may roll out to all states and territories as both the Labor and the Greens have policies to remove the discrimination which is inherited in the National School Chaplains Programme. The dog's position was articulated in one of the 409 comments. Uh, This article in The Guardian had a lot of comments online, 409 of them, on a related article in The Guardian online as follows. The important thing until Mr Howard's thought bubble was always to have a properly qualified guidance officer in a school. In days gone by, in New South Wales at least, this employee, that's the guidance officer, had to have six years teaching experience and a degree in educational psychology, etc., before they were employed in this role. It required great skill and knowledge and experience. A teacher could send a troubled child to the guidance officer on whatever was said in the to the officer was private and the child could return to the classroom and get on with their learning. Teacher and guidance could remain separate and this assisted learning. What was relevant was training, skill, experience and a specified role. Religion had nothing to do with it. Religion is a matter for parents and the relevant institutions in our society, not our public schools. Any form of state aid to religious activities is bad for the state, but worse for religion. And now, half a century on from a return to the bad old days of the 19th century in the denominational system, we sure have plenty of evidence to prove it. And that was signed by yours truly. There are a number of other interesting um, responses to the article in The Guardian, and I'll read a few of them. Green Exercise Addict has this to say, The Victorian Government has already pledged a mental health worker in every government secondary school, a policy which supplements but does not displace chaplains. In February, the Federal Shadow Education Minister, Tanya Plibersek, promised that Labor will give schools the choice of a chaplain or a secular social worker. And this is a sensible change. Who would you prefer that a traumatised or a depressed child deals with at school? An unqualified religious chaplain or a qualified social worker or psychologist? Primary schools also need mental health workers. There are many children with various mental health problems, including children as young as six years old. And that, of course, is getting back to where it was at when you had. Proper guidance or welfare officers in every school. They're quite separate. Their role is quite separate from the um, the teaching role. And the idea, I suppose, was that somehow chaplains were going to replace this role. If a religious person wants to be a welfare worker, well, well and good, so long as they don't proselytise. But their role and their 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 beliefs should be of no concern at all to the people who employ them, not for our public schools. Uh, here is a very interesting letter that was written by Laurie Griffith, who is obviously a rationalist or an atheist, but he has some views. It's clear to me that ratbags like Abbott think of Western civilization exclusively as the Christian history of Europe they erroneously conflate that with the Enlightenment. Well, what would one expect a Christian seminary to teach? Because theology, that they believe, is an argument in a bottle. But it's not correct to say that the Enlightenment is not part of of the history of Europe. The Enlightenment marked the birth of the Age of Reason, And from that we inherited science, secular philosophy and the rejection of divine doctrine, secular ethics, the rediscovery of democracy, the separation of church and state, the separation of political powers, that's the parliament, the executive uh, and the, the legal arm, the courts, and the equal application of the rule of law. And that's just to name a few things. It's civilised modern life that we have enjoyed for the last two centuries, in fact. One of the great failures of the so-called freedom of religion has been the undermining of the values of the Enlightenment and secular science. Well, if you don't have separation of church and state, in the end you don't really have freedom of religion either, we suggest. Sadly, this has been aided by misapplied postmodern theories of cultural equivalence, where every declarative assertion is given equal weight, regardless of the evidence, provided the proponent can claim social identity through it. And this has given us the socially destructive insanity of fake news, choose-your-own-facts and selective denialism. And the chaplaincy program is part of that erosion of reason, because religion is a cultural construct. Not everybody, of course, would agree with that, but that's his point of view. And it's, it is a personal choice. It is a social identity and it's a state of mind. Uh, religious knowledge, dogs would say, is different to scientific and other knowledge. Unless a person has been brainwashed and mentally imprinted with a belief in the supernatural at an age where the brain is still growing... And this has allowed people like Abbott and Pell a space where they have claimed authority over their version of the values of Western knowledge and civilisation as being exclusively Christian. And this is dangerous. So that was an interesting point of view, which some of the DOGS members would agree with, not all of them, because, as we've said again and again, a lot of our DOGS members have very firm religious beliefs. That is, their, their right, of course. And um, part of that belief is that you should have separation of religion from the state. And here is Victor, a voter from Bentley, who says, as far as I'm concerned, secular schools should have qualified secular counsellors. If religious schools want chaplains and religious counsellors, then they can have them and pay for them themselves. Because remember, the religious schools in Australia have chaplains and we, the taxpayers, are paying for them in the same way as in some cases we are more than paying for the running costs and now the capital costs of large numbers of religious schools, particularly of the Catholic variety. Uh, there was a comment that was removed by a moderator because it didn't abide by their community standards. So The Guardian is apparently a bit better than Facebook. Well, we've got some more good news stories today, but before we go on with that and Dale tells you about a young man up in Queensland, uh, we'll have a bit of music. Music
2: God looks
1: Dale, she spent many hours of her life last week making sure that you heard what those young people, those brave young people, those very special young people up at the Treasury Buildings told us about their feelings about climate change. But she has another story to tell you herself about a young man who made sure that his school was solar powered and here it is. Thanks,
0: Jean. I've got an article here written by Cal Glansnake, and uh, it's entitled One Step Off the Grid. How I got solar in- installed in my New South Wales school and how you could too. One of the major New South Wales election promises of both major parties is the installation of solar panels at school. But the question is, why don't schools, in particular state-owned schools, already have solar installed? My name is Cal Glansnick, I graduated from high school last year and throughout my final year I single-handedly organised, lobbied and arranged for funds for a $100,000, 100 kilowatt solar panel installation for my school in Sydney South. From this experience I have shown that any passionate student or individual can do the same for their own school. As a regular reader of Renew and Economy, with a keen interest in the transition to renewable energy, I often wondered why my school wasn't powered by renewable energy. The solar PV bell curve perfectly aligns with the weekday energy demands of a school. I approached my principal with this question, to which he suggested that a better way to reduce a school's electricity footprint was to switch our light bulbs to LEDs and promote energy-saving measures. Installing solar was far too much of a convoluted and complicated process. I respected his views, but decided to do my own research. With the backing of my SRC and student body, I contacted the New South Wales Department of Education Sustainability Unit asking how my school could get solar installed. And after several back and forths over the summer holidays, they sent through the new streamlined process to my principal, who called me into his office on the first day back in 2018. He was extremely positive, as the only measures the school had to do to get solar installed was firstly choose the size of the installation out of a few options, then arrange funding for 50% of the installation. That's it. The Department of Education provide the other 50% of funds and, ar- and arrange all the logistics and installation. So with my principal's support, he arranged for me to pitch to the Parents and Citizens Association the only source of funds for an initiative like this. Both the principal and I weren't expecting any decision made on the night of the pitch due to the sheer amount of funds that we were after, $50,000. But after my speech highlighting all the economical and social and environmental benefits, the mums and dads of my school community were urged to vote on the matter. It was a unanimous vote, which was humbling but not surprising as the PNC gets its investment back in three years with the school saving $15,385 on energy usage each year and there would be more, fun, more money to fund new initiatives and increase opportunities available at the school. Once we signed off on that, we had the 50%, $50,000. The Department of Education did the rest. Arranged the tender, chose the supplier and monitored the installation. From the speech in late March, the whole process, the whole project only took around eight months. During the school holidays before my HSC in October, the panels were installed without disrupting any students. This made me think, why stop at Caring Bar High? I was approached by the organisers of the Sydney Secondary Leaders Coalition, a group of school leaders from 25 schools from all around Sydney. I shared with them my story, my template, process and speech and they generated a generic template that any student can use to arrange the installation of solar panels. This has seen many other schools across Sydney follow the same process and hopefully the movement continues to grow. Climate change is an issue that needs to be acted upon now and it's refreshing to see the way young people around the world are stepping up and attempting to solve an issue disregarded for so long.
1: Well, isn't is that a wonderful story? And just think how much money uh, to electricity companies that school and other schools like it are not paying. Uh, that gentleman is that young man is saving us taxpayers a pretty penny, as well as helping the planet. Well, that was a lovely story. Let's have a little bit of music, shall we, and uh, some announcements.
3: December 2017, Tanya Day, proud Yorta Yorta woman and much loved member of the Aboriginal community, was travelling by train to Melbourne. When V-Line staff found her asleep, they called Castlemaine Police and she was removed from the train and charged with public drunkenness. Tanya died 17 days later as a result of head injuries sustained while in custody. This would never have happened had the recommendations of the 2001 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody been implemented. Tanyude's family is calling for the crime of public drunkenness to be abolished and for the implementation of genuine community health alternatives to incarceration. Please add your support by signing the petition at 3CR reception 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy or online by entering Tanya Day Petition into your browser. Join me,
0: Sally Goldner, the presenter of Out of the Pan for a live broadcast on International Trans Day of Visibility at Haz and Hyenas on 31st of March 2019 organised by Transgender Victoria with 3CR. With co-host Mama Alto, we'll be moderating a live panel discussion about issues, experiences and intersections between and about trans people of colour. Get your tickets online at tdov2019.eventbrite.com.au That's tdov2019.eventbrite.com.au Or listen live to the discussion right here on 855am on digital and streaming online.
1: Well, uh, Diana Ravitch tells us that uh, over in Georgia in the United States, a charter school has um, got a, a great innovation. It's actually a school without students. One year into its founding as a purported bold next step in education reform, the administrators of a charter school on Monday sang the praises of Forest Gates Academy, a progressive new charter school that practices an innovative philosophy of not admitting any students. Uh, so the Academy President, Diana Blanchard, has claimed that the experimental school boasts state of the art facilities, a diverse and challenging syllabus and so on, but there's no students there. And it's received 80 million from the state of Georgia and it also gets money from the Walton Fa- Family Foundation. So what exactly is it doing apart from building facilities allegedly and uh, raking in the money? Over in England, we discover from The Guardian that women teachers earn 50p for one pound made by men at some multi-academy trusts. Um, and th- so there's a very big, stark gender pay gap in the United Kingdom. So that's just the news from overseas here in Australia. The argue has exposed the fact that... Um, Somebody who, a senior official who's been in the NAPLAN testing business here in Australia has gone to join the Pearson group in America, the multinational that runs the NAPLAN tests. So we've been thinking about the gun lobby this week. Well, NAPLAN tests are a little better. So there we are. That's enough uh, for overseas and corruption news. This, on the whole, has been a good news program. So stay, stay with us and you'll hear some more good news from Robert. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by the school. i
4: proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education.
1: Well, we have Robert with us, uh, not in person, but in voice, and hopefully in spirit. Hello, Robert. Hello, Jane.
4: Yes, I'm trying to come against you today, but I'm still got a lot lots to share with others.
1: Well, I thought that you'd like to uh, tell us about this very interesting article and the Kind of um, information that the Age is providing for their readers on the four secret ingredients that can turn good schools into great ones. It came into the um, into the uh, papers this last few days, and it's yeah. very much related to our state schools as great schools. So before we get into our state schools as great schools, you might like to talk to our readers about this.
4: Yeah, no, it's a fascinating thing. Um, the Age basically doing what we've been doing here at the Dogs Programme for ages with our great state schools. Um, they're indulging, indulging they're, they're propagating something called data journalism. Now, data journalism is where you find a story buried in the data um, for any particular thing. So if you're trying to find a story about the environment, you find out what the numbers are, um, and, you, and then you report on that. Now, with education... Um, the Channel Nine group, which um, have now now include the Age, um, have done a series of articles called Schools That Excel, um, and it's a sort of data journalism. They've got they've they've um, looked at the data that's around all the schools in Victoria, and done various probes. So they've highlighted various schools, and I'll be talking about one particular school later. But they've also talked about, I think it's a useful way. They've used the data to try and find out what it is that makes a good school. Now, often on the dogs we talk about private schools and Catholic schools and independent schools, but the AIDS, you know, being the A's, don't look at that, they look at what makes a good school, and their findings are quite interesting. Um, in an article by Henry A. Cook um, on the 18th of March, 2019, um, on the AIDS website, they, the article she written is the four secret ingredients that can turn a good school into a great one. And it's interesting, and I think it's worth sharing with our listeners what she said, because much of what I agree with, and some of what I don't. Um, it ignores key ingredients, but it does talk about some very important things.
5: Yeah. But she also admits,
4: this is Henrietta Cook, the author, she says, if there was a simple re- recipe for improving schools, then we'd all just use it, and it'd be fine. Um, so there is no particular secret recipe, because within the recipe for a successful school, one of the key ingredients, of course is flexibility who's turning up at the school door because they're the ones that you have to educate the kids that turn up at the school um gate um every morning are the ones who have to educate and so therefore one of the key ingredients um in the recipe for a good school is there is no one recipe. You have to be flexible.
1: You start with the children. Isn't that wonderful that somebody who calls themselves an educator is prepared to start with the children rather than talk about discipline and uh, knowledge and all of that kind of thing? Now, I wonderful. think it's really
4: interesting because a lot of the schools that they've um, used as examples in this are ones that we've previously highlighted as great state schools. So, for instance, um, the Eltham College, we've highlighted the dogs' program program, um, um, late last year. The principal, Simon uh, pastier speaks proudly about the high achievement former school captain who completed BTE, French Literature and Extended Investigations and Hospitality. Mm. French Literature, Investigations and Hospitality. He says, um, other independent schools I've worked at would find that it may not be a good look for them to do hospitality because it's not physics and it's not literature, he said. But what I'm really trying to do is give... all know what the school's about. There's no...
1: All on the same page.
4: Well, on the same page as well. but I I think that's a fair thing to say. But I think if a parent and a teacher and a student all know what the same goal is, then it's so much harder for a student to fall through the cracks because everyone's asking the same questions of each other and themselves. So, therefore, the answers... In in answering those questions, they get a good education. Mm.
5: Now,
4: when Maria Odo became the principal Work hard to get parents to embrace her new vision for the school. She wanted the students to achieve top marks and to attend the state's most prestigious universities, she said. We had parents who didn't have the same successful experience at their own schooling. Um, she said, What the kids, she wanted more from the kids, and we ended up with a common language, she said. We said to them, Your child could attend something in a
1: for some no, <laughs> they for get some rid of it. the ones that aren't um, and I
4: would say exactly of course because I can be confused like, high expectations is different to high achievement
1: yes it is
4: and I think high expectations are somewhat interesting and actually double meaningful when it comes to having a good school
1: well it means That's giving a child confidence
4: and now doesn't? this is to be fair um, something that all children both in the public sector the Catholic sector and the independent sector deserve <sighs> whether they come from a disadvantaged or an advantaged community, whether their postcode is one with a low SES status or whether their postcode is one that produces people with high SES status. The high expectations are what are required. Teachers do not rest on assumptions about what certain students are capable of achieving and set high standards for all students. Now, this is kind of the opposite of all children must have prizes. Yes. But, it's, but it's kind of not at the same time as well. It's, it's a different way of looking at it. Now, the same amount of work and effort is expected from all students in high-achieving schools. Students are given the confidence to achieve their dreams and are exposed to a variety of careers. But you see, the whole idea is that the same amount of work and effort is expected from all students. That doesn't mean it's all the same work.
1: No.
4: And it doesn't mean that all the efforts are in the same thing. Because that's where the flexibility element So if you combine high expectations with flexibility, you start to get a very interesting and good school. If you have high expectations but no flexibility, that's actually a recipe for disaster. That's right. And some terrible right. things can happen to children yes, if there's no flexibility that's and right. just high expectations. That's and right. we often see this in some very high-achieving schools in of commerce.
1: Yes, indeed. So, because then you're, you're, you're um, talking about the sheep and the goats and the successes and the failures.
4: Yeah. Now, all of this is all just, as far as I'm concerned, really good stuff and very interesting and useful because it's all a bit high for And one of the other key features of, of a successful school is actually much more mechanical. So The feature of a successful school is The ability within the school community, certainly between the teachers and the students, which is one of the key relationships, is that the goals and the instructions that the students get are clear, crystal clear.
1: Certainty.
4: What is expected of them in every class, in every goal, and what it is they're working towards is known. It's not a mystery. And the structure of the lessons, the teacher can demonstrate skills and the students need to learn and then constantly check the understanding of key concepts. In educational service, this is called explicit instruction. Now, explicit instruction doesn't mean everything has to be done by the numbers. Oh no, It's just that the key concepts that you wish the students to understand are not a mystery. You say, this is what you, we wish you to understand. You do not understand it yet. We will work now towards it and here's some instructions on how to get there. Each of your pathways might be different, but this is where we're
5: going.
1: Oh, I think that's very sensible. I can remember, um, at the tertiary level anyway, thinking that... um, what was in what we were about was like some kind of a contract between the teacher and the student. And if they knew exactly what was expected of them, then they could come back at the teacher if they didn't do well enough and oh, say... It's a contract,
4: isn't it? Yes,
1: it is. It, it should be a but, certainly as, an arrangement. Yeah.
4: Mm. Um, now, one of the Sunby Downs College students, I think, puts, puts it better. Her name is, her name is Amber Keras. Keras, I should say. And what she says is very clear and simple, and I think it's part of one of the key ingredients of any good educational experience, certainly any good school, is that every student knows what they have to learn. Mm-hmm. Now that sounds like a very simple thing you expect it to be happening, but so often and often, it gets lost in the process. Every student knows what they have to learn, and then the teacher is there working with them flexibly, Supporting them as part of a community and with high expectations on what on what they're supposed to learn and how they're supposed to get to it, then of course you have the ingredients for, for a, a a great school. Now, speaking of great school, I've mentioned it a couple of times, but I think been, i I really want to talk about the great state school that we have going to highlight this week, which is in fact one of my old schools. I used to teach there way back in 1996. Yeah, it's very about 25 years ago, I, I worked at this school. And it's
1: really interesting to see how far it's come. Um, well, we'll have a bit of a break, Robert, while you prepare the all the things that you want to say because I know you're just bursting to go. Indeed. And thank you very much for that, um, that educational uh, lecture. I found it really very helpful well, because well, I, one gets really sick of opening up The Australian and reading Kevin Donnelly, who seems to think that children are bottles into which you pour information. Okay, well we'll have a bit of a break and then back to schools. Great State Schools.
4: Every week on the Dogs program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school.
0: State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School great of the week. Great state schools. State, state schools. School of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program.
1: Welcome back, Robert.
4: Now to Sunbury Downs Secondary College. Sunbury Downs Secondary College. It's an amazing place. Um, well, it was back in 1996 when I worked there. It was... Well, Sunbury is an interesting place. There are, there, is a, there are two very prestigious private schools and then there's Sunbury College and the bottom of the heap, the bottom of the heap of all the schools in Sunbury is Sunbury Downs Secondary. That's the way it was back in 1996 when I was working there. First school out of university, it was. Um, and it's been that way for a very long time, you know, because towns have hierarchies, everyone has ideas, parental communities, you know, condemn schools about it as turning, into, no, t- turning, turning around the corner and walk, walking in the school gate. But somebody in the Secretary of College has done something amazing. They've got an award. Um, they have got an award in the schools that excel because the results of the school itself, certainly in terms of NAPLAN, are really interesting. In, the, in terms of the NAPLAN results, the NAPLAN results have been fine and stable since 2010.
5: They've been it's a long time. fine
4: and stable. So nothing special, nothing out of the ordinary, nothing brilliant. But remember, year nine, NAPLAN results were in year seven and year nine. So from 2010, from the very beginning of NAPLAN up until 2017, which is the last time the NAPLAN results and data came in, They've been fine. They're not above or substantially below, but they're not below or substantially below either. They are just fine in terms of schools with similar students. But Sunbury Downs is not the average Australian school. Sunbury Downs Secondary College um, has an ICSI value of 998, and fully, or how can I say this, 70% of the kids come from the poorest families in Australia. And only 10% come from the richest families in Australia. But it's interesting that 10% do. I'll, I'll come back to that. There are 60 staff and around about 800 kids. 9% of them come from a background language other than English. And there's 1% of the kids are indigenous. So if you know much about Sunbury, it's not particularly a monoculture in terms of you know white Anglo-Celtics and that sort of stuff. But it's pretty close to it. Pretty close to it. Um, that's what somebody's like and so that's what the school's like. It's 37 K's Northwestern Melbourne. It's, it's a good school. It's doing good. It's certainly much better than it was in 1996 and they've been doing interesting good things. Um, how much does it cost somebody doing, you know, getting quite good NAPLAN results? Quite good NAPLAN. It costs, now remember, for a, to average, to sort of educate an average student, um, from an average postcode in Australia, would cost you around about you know, fourteen to $15,000 a year in a second year college. Um, in Sunbury Downs, they're getting away with it for $99 over 12000 So they're doing it on the cheap. Certainly a lot less government money than going into the profit schools down the road um, is going into Sunbury Downs. They're doing it on the cheap. So it's an OK school. And that that claim results not so good. Um, and they're doing it on the cheap, which is great. You're telling, me,
1: you're telling me that there's more public money goes into the school down the road. Yeah.
4: But why? Sorry, but why is, am I saying that Sunbury Downs is one of the great schools in Victoria? Well, because of what's happened, not at NAPLAN, not at E 7 and Year 9, but what's happening at VCE? Now, I mentioned um, Ms Odo as the principal, Maria Odo. And she said when she got there in 2012, kids going to Sunbury Downs would not go to Melbourne. Melbourne was too far away, Melbourne was too scary. They decided that they would not leave what they call there yeah, the Sunbury bubble. I've come across this when I worked on the peninsula too. People won't go north of the Frankston mine. They just won't. They won't go into the big bad city nothing to do with them. But the principal said, oh, I decided that that's not going to happen anymore and distance isn't going to be an excuse. She wanted her students to venture beyond Sunbury so they could be exposed to some of the country's top universities. So the school started running Year 12 overnight retreats at University College, at the University of Melbourne. For some students, it was the first time they'd ever travelled to the city by themselves. As part of the experience, students took the university's great buildings and sat in on a lecture. They also visited RMIT and they visited TAFE colleges just to get a taste of what could happen to them if they'd studied well at school. She I wanted them to get the result and get into RMIT and get into the uni at Melbourne, Ms. Odo explained. She said, fast-forwarding seven years from when she arrived in 2012, the students at Sunbury Downs Secondary College are achieving top-rock marks that are required for these institutions. The, the median VCE study score has skyrocketed from 25 out of the possible 50 to 31. Now, any median study score at VCE above 30 is a good result. It's celebrated by any school striving for solid and academic reputation. So from year 9 to year to VCE, something extraordinary is happening. Dreams are being fostered and being fulfilled. Now, during the period of 2012 to today, the proportion of study scores that have 40 or more have increased from 2% to almost 1 in 10. Now, a study score of about 40 is a lot that's that's you know university high school kind of stuff. Yes. That's selective high school schools kind of yep. stuff. Yep. Now this transformation. It's actually led the age awards. Somebody down secondary school college, schools at excel State School winner, for the Melbourne Northern Region. The ducks of the school last year, Rory, said the college's culture has shifted dramatically since he's been at school. He said when I started there was definitely academic faces, but I never really felt pushed. Now. The Ducks, Mr. Healy, who achieved an impressive ATAR of 97.1, now, this is from somebody down secondary, is now studying science at the University of Melbourne. And she actually overhauled the way teachers engage with students, and that's why it's happened. She said, there's a lot more focus on behaviour management and keeping students on track. This is what we're talking about in terms of high expectations and kids knowing what was supposed to be going on. And, she said, there are lots of strategies to extend students who are doing well. That's the flexibility. The school now runs tuition classes throughout the term and on, and on holidays to ensure all VCE coursework is completed by term three, freeing up the final term for exam study. Also overtold on subjects offered for VCAL, a vocational alternative to VCE, to make the program more relevant and rigorous. So not only they're not just focusing on VCE study schools, they're saying, no, nope, let's, let's improve VCAL as well. Also, instead of waiting until year 11 to start VCAL, students in the school can now start them in year 10. Again, clear expectations are implemented as part of an overall school community. So here I am talking about all the facts and figures when it comes to NAPLAN results, but actually there's some facts and figures that come to VCE, which mean that some of our secondary colleges are doing some extraordinary things. In fact, they are our great state school. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending.
0: Brunswick Secondary School, State College. schools are great. Harkaway Primary School. Primary school. Sunshine North primary school. primary school. They're really
6: concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning.
4: Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking
6: Actually an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs.
0: More than half of your
4: kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia.
6: Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's who, that's who we welcome into the
0: school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the when weekly like
6: assemblies them. and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a, a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words that it is
4: actually. So, so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom.
6: It's a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning.
4: Of state schools are great schools.
0: Great state schools.
1: Well, that's it for this, this week. And thanks to Dale, who's been on the other side and made sure that it'll go to air. And if you want to hear more or know more about us, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info or if you want to hear this program or other programs again, you can go to 3CR and our podcast. Bye for now.
7: I'm standing by my bed they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I dead, says Joe but I dead The copper bosses killed you Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I Went on to organize went on to organize from San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill where workers strike and organize it's there you find your head. Joe here last night, alive as you and me, says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead, I